The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by MiPhoto, who has just introduced their latest generation of tripod, the MiPhoto Air. They're lighter, smaller, more stable, and more colorful than ever. Find out more about this and other great designs by visiting MiPhoto.com and use the offer code THECANDIDFRAME to get 15% off any MiPhoto purchase. That's MiPhoto, M-E-F-O-T-O.com. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. We often measure success in terms of money and acclaim. While others say it's just being able to do what you love that helps make you a success. But I want to suggest to you that maybe success may be creating an opportunity to be of service to others. Photographer Andrea Francolini did just that. Andrea has had a great career as a photographer and is primarily known for his amazing images of boating and sailing. It's a career that has earned him a good living and has allowed him to travel extensively. But beyond being inspired to make great photographs, Andrea has also been inspired to bring educational opportunities to children in Pakistan. In a land that's predominantly described in negative terms in in the media, Andrea found communities of people that were warm and kind and whose children were in desperate need of the most basic things when it comes to schooling and education. And rather than just document it with his camera, he decided to do something about it. And thus, his organization, The First School, came into being. Well, Andrea, thank you so much and welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really excited to have a chance to sit down and and talk with you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, You have a pretty uh, international background. You've lived in various parts of the world. Tell us a little bit about your, your, your story. Well, I'm Italian-born with Italian parents, but at a young age, we moved to New York, where I stayed there for 10 years. Then we moved to Geneva in Switzerland for 11. Then I eventually made it back to Italy for eight, and now I've been in Sydney, Australia for the past 16. You uh, got your education both in the States and in, and in Switzerland, and but you started your career not as a photographer, but in the graphic design industry. Yes, that's correct. Tell us about what your why your interest laid there and how it eventually segued into a career as a photographer? My main issue is that I wasn't very good at drawing, but I think I was quite keen when it comes to composition and design. So graphic designing for me was um, was an option at the time. And then photography just picked up as a hobby. And I had a cousin of mine who was an advanced amateur, quite a good photographer. And, you know, this is the days of film. So I'd look at what he was doing on his slide film and all that. And then I would try myself. And it was something that I just did, like many people do just on holidays, which was fantastic. And uh, little by little, you know, at the time, you only had magazines as a reference or otherwise you had to pick somebody's brains uh, for some tips. And eventually, after I think two or three years of uh, graphic designing, a client 
that I had in West Africa needed some pictures and he knew I was taking pictures as a hobby. He said, come on, come with me, take the pictures, make the calendars and the brochures. So one thing led to another and here we are 20 years later. How, how do you think your, your experience as a, as a graphic designer helped you as you started developing your skills as a photographer? I think the main thing, which is the most important thing, is composition. And when you're drawing logos or when you're making a brochure or a calendar for a client, obviously composition is key. I think that unconsciously that has translated or been taken over to photography. So it is something, um, I'm not going to say that I see my old layouts in my pictures, no, but when you're taking a picture, it's more spontaneous. So it's obviously something that's been going on for a while. But when you're you're doing graphic design, you're considering not only the image, but you're also considering sort of text and, you know, and different and different elements that you include in there. When it comes to making a a photograph, what are some of the sort of the sensibilities that you've developed in doing a layout? How does it translate to when you're actually trying to build a, a photograph? Look, I, I mean, it's two different mechanisms. When you were doing a layout, from what I remember, um, you have time to check the fonts. You have time to change colors if there's a logo, the size, and the composition. When you're taking a picture, especially with what I do when it comes to sports photography, you don't have much time to think about that because everything happens in a split second. So I think it was a good training course to be reactive now. But yes, there are some images which are not becoming cliche, but you know that a certain picture has to be shot in a certain way, depending on what you want to show the the viewers. And how did you start translating your sort of casual interest in photography into covering sports, particularly yachting? Well, I literally fell into it, as in I was going sailing with a cousin one day in Italy, and I put my foot on a boat. It was a very small boat, slipped and fell in the water. He just looked at me, shook his head gave me a hand and he said, you're staying on the dock. And I was a little (laughs) bit annoyed, obviously, because I was soaking wet and I couldn't go out sailing with him. But uh, he had his bag on the dock and he had a camera in it. So while he was sailing, I took out his camera and shot two rolls of film of all the other boats coming past me. At the end of the day, you know, the boat started coming in and a mother came up to me and said, oh, you were taking pictures. You have pictures of my kid. And I had absolutely no idea, one, what I was doing and two, what kind of pictures I took. So I just told her, said, wait a minute, I'll be right back. So I went to the fast photo lab around the corner, had the film processed. Half an hour later, I had everything. And when she offered to buy these um, postcard sized prints, she just asked me, how much do you want? I said, look, I don't know. The film cost me X amount. The processing cost me an X amount. Here's the total. And that's how it started. And how do you take it from that into actually eventually making a career photographing some amazing, uh, amazing vessels in, in competition and for, you know, and for clients? Look, I, I continued doing it on weekends because I was getting interested in it and I liked it. It looked nice and, you know, you get to see some nice places. Um, then eventually I kept on selling prints, which would make a little bit of extra cash. But we're talking about, you know, if there was a profit of $50 at the time, it was a lot. So, but the, anyway, the passion was there. And then uh, one day I met a very well-known sailing photographer who's still around today, who I admired when I started knowing who he was. And um, he was around the world shooting all these big international events. And there was an event in Italy that he couldn't cover. And a journalist had tipped me off saying, hey, come shoot this event. He's not there. There might be a chance to get a picture published. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Sure, let's do it. And and I did. And we got two pictures published, which obviously at the time I was absolutely over the moon because it was the first image. And one of them was full page. And then after that, I started contributing with this photo agency that this photographer had. And just giving the pictures on the weekends or whatever I'll do until little by little that grew. And then I ended up working with him in the agency for two years. 
as uh, since I speak English, French, and Italian, as keeping the relationships with other agencies to sell his pictures. And that was a massive learning curve because when you see thousands of pictures every day of very high quality, you're soaking it in, you're learning. And in the meantime, I was shooting on weekends. Graphic design ended. Photography started picking up both in the agency and on weekends where I could actually do something. And here we go now. So it's just a question. It's a question of time and investing in it. Did you ever develop any any yachting skills? No, I have no idea about yachting. I am not going to learn about it because I'm I'm not interested in it. I just, which is something that a lot of people find very strange. I just love the sports for different reasons than the yachties do. So, so what kind of skill sets did you have to sort of to develop in order to be an effective photographer uh, of this particular sport? Because you know, from what I've seen in the images, you're not just off on a distance shooting with a long lens all the time. Sometimes the image, images are very intimate. So you still have to s- sort of develop a certain set of skills and sensibility in order to make really good and dramatic portraits of, of, of the sport. So can you tell us in terms of what some of the things were that you had to learn early on? Well, first of all, you have to learn what's happening around you. Because obviously, if you don't know which direction the boats are going, you're going to miss it. Like any sport, you have to anticipate things. And sailing is one of those sports where luckily they go around a course so you can get in front of the boats and wait for them to come at you and then get the right moment, capture the right moment. I think the most important thing for me was, one, to learn how to keep my cameras dry, which seems funny, but it's quite an important aspect of it. And then two, especially when you go on board, is to understand how the crew moves around. So it's gotten to the point now where I can be on a maxi while they're dropping the spinnaker, and I'm literally standing next to somebody to get that intimate action shot without getting his elbow in my face, because obviously that would hurt and it would, uh, I'd say, mess up the timings of the crew. And, you know, you can risk having accidents, which is not good for anybody. And that's one of the amazing things about that that sports from from what I've seen on them. And and it's like you have so many people that are on that boat all performing a particular role. And as you said, you really have to be aware of what each person is doing and being conscious of your your space relative to them. Beyond simply being aware of them, you're always trying to get a good angle for the shot. So how do you sort of have to balance out what you want to do in order to be able to get a good shot as compared to making sure that, like you said, you're not getting in anybody's way? If, if there's something in particular that I want, I often obtain it or I try to get it when the boat's out for training sessions, not when they're doing a regatta. Because when they're doing a regatta, even if you have a person walking around the deck, it changes the dynamics of the boat and everybody gets a bit fussy about it because they're in racing mode. So a lot of the pictures are done while they're training. Mm -hmm. I know what they're going to do. The skipper and the crew quite often know me, so they see, okay, Andrea's here, let's just be careful. But um, otherwise, it's just like, all right, what are we going to do? Are we going to do a spinnaker drop? Yep. Can I go up on the bow of the boat and do it? So, yeah, yeah, go for it. And sometimes I've been told, no, don't, because we're doing some other kind of maneuver and it could be a bit dangerous or it's a bit too rough, whatever. Um, so that's just a question of uh, communication between the crew and myself. I can, I can give them ideas and then they'll say, well, yeah, but we're not going to do that today. So, okay, you work around it. Did, did it take a while for people to trust you enough to allow you on the boat to make the photographs? Um, on the big boats, yes, uh, because obviously those are racing machines. And as I said, it takes really a fraction of a second for something to go wrong. And it could be expensive also for the boat owner or the sponsor. So they obviously don't want that. But I think it came quite naturally because luckily when I was doing it here in Australia, nobody really did that kind of photography. So when I managed to get, even if it was on a small boat, 
and luckily a picture was published, then someone would say, oh yeah, he's the guy who took that picture on board that other boat, mm. let, let him on, or he, he knows what he's doing. So I had magazines backing me up, I had magazines asking for it, and now luckily um, I'm the one asking for it because people either know me or they're boats that I've been working with for a long time, so there is a relationship. You mentioned about keeping your equipment dry. Can, can, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about that. There are so many limitations that you have to contend with um, that, that when, you're, when you're on a boat. Uh, and I, I would assume that part of it is that you can't take everything that you own on that boat in order to make things happen. So what are the, some of the considerations you have to make in terms of what you take on board and how you, how you use it? So when I'm physically on board the yacht, as in the sailboat itself that's, uh, that's competing or training, I can take basically what I want. But in the end, it's what you need. So I'm a great believer that less is more. I have two cameras, two lenses, always with me at any time, because if a camera fails, at least you have a backup and you can swap lenses. But I'll find myself very often shooting with the same lens. So on board, it's a wide angle because you want to capture the size of everything. And then being passionate for street photography, I have that kind of eye where I'm shooting with a 35 mil lens at 28, maybe even a little bit wider depending on the boat. But um, it's just keep it, keeping it to a minimum. I rarely use flash because I don't like it and I'm not very good at using it too. So that is, uh, I have to work my way around that. Yeah, just min minimal stuff. Then when I'm on a chase boat or I'm in a helicopter, I bring everything from 16 mil to a 500. So there you have three cameras, three bodies, and then a lens in the back pocket just in case you want to do something different. You know, earlier we were talking about um, composition, how they're playing a role. So, you know, here you are, whether you're on a helicopter, whether you're on the boat, whether you're, you know, offshore uh, photographing them, you know, you, you're often having to consider not just the boat and the people that are on the boat, but the expanse of water that's around you. Uh, sometimes the wake from the boat. How do all of those things sort of play a role in you being able to sort of shape shape an, an, an image? What are some of the things that you are thinking about graphically in terms of, in terms of being able to make a really good shot that sort of captures not only sort of maybe the, the natural shape and line of, of, of a boat, but also within the context of the environment in which you're shooting it in? Look, that's something that I've been learning over the years. And I would say that if you look at my pictures in the past five years, something has changed a little bit. I love full impact pictures. Like I love when you open a double spread in a magazine, the boat's just jumping at you. It's plowing out of a wave, like full on impact, which is great. And it's a nice action shot. Then having hung around with a lot of uh, photojournalist friends, they say, yeah, cool picture. Where was it taken? I said, oh, it's here in Sydney. I said, okay, because this picture could be taken anywhere in the world because there's no reference to it. I started shooting a bit wider just to put the land, um, how do you say it, to put a background to it. So in Sydney, for example, you might have the opera house or you might have the bridge or you might have some dolphins or just to shoot a little bit wider so people see where the boat is and try to get more atmosphere. Obviously, if there's a su uh, superb cloud formation, you're going to want a small boat and show this big cloud formation in the background because even though it's not an action picture, it can look quite dramatic. Mm -hmm. Then again, there might be somebody on the bow of the boat plowing into a wave and the guy's going totally underwater. And there you really want that action shot. You don't care where the boat is. You just want to see what that poor man's going through. And how about lighting? Because, I, I, you know, people think about sort of the... The golden hour, you know, for a lot of landscape and outdoor photography. And, but with, with this sport, you may not necessarily have the advantage of being able to shoot under the most ideal light. And you may be relegated to shooting during the middle of the day. So what, what are some of the considerations that you have to make in terms of shooting the sport in less than the ideal light? 
Well, I think, first of all, you never shoot in good conditions because the regattas always start around 11 o'clock in the morning and finish around two or three. So that that's not going to work uh, unless it's a long race and you're staying out at night to, um, to get the sunset. You, you have to deal with it. I mean, obviously, it's exposure. Um, you, there's nothing. There's nothing you can do. So that's where composition and hoping that there is wind and action takes part. So, yeah, you, you can't count on a light. Obviously, if you're doing something in the morning or at sunset, it gets even more exciting because you have that golden hour, which is fantastic. But um, I don't remember the last time that happened, to be honest. And how did this sort of translate into you photographing other sports? Um, it's just a question of interest on my side and a challenge. Uh, there's something I like shooting tennis, for example, and unfortunately, it's something that I only do once a year. I find it quite difficult because it moves extremely fast. And uh, one thing is watching tennis on TV, and one thing is seeing it in real life. The athletes really move quickly. And as you know, when you're shooting with a long lens, it makes things even harder. So I'd have to say that on day one of the tournament that's here in Sydney, it'll take me probably a set to get into the rhythm of things by one, missing the athlete, two, missing the ball, and three, getting your bearings around everything. But it's, it's a challenge because it's something new. And whenever I go shoot a new sport, I always, especially a sport that I don't know anything about, I always look where the other photographers are first and I go stand next to them and see what they're seeing. And then eventually once I have the safe shot, then I'll go and try and do something else and play with shadows or perspective or something like that. The project that uh, turned me on to you was your my, my first school project, which is, which is a, a project that is in Pakistan. So yes. how do you, how do you find your way from doing what you're doing to make a living where you're photographing these amazing yachts in, in this sport to small schools in Pakistan? Well, I went to Pakistan for the first time in 2008 because I had in mind to start a portfolio on traditional sports. One of the sports that I photographed was uh, sumo wrestling in Japan, falconry, bullfighting, surf lifesaving. And I remember seeing a documentary on, um, on a polo game up in the mountains, but I couldn't remember where it was. And once I decided to do this, since I was funding it myself, I said, you know what, I'm gonna go visit the countries I want, find the sports that I like, and let's see what happens. And eventually I found out um, that this place was in Pakistan, so I was quite excited. The only difficult thing was to tell my family that I was going there. I went there, photographed this polo tournament, which was up at 4,000 meters in the mountain which I don't know how much it is in feet, but it's very high. And um, it's a festival that lasts for three days once a year. And I went there and did a beautiful tour, saw landscape, and it was an eye-opener moment. It was just, you know, amazing people, amazing places, and something new. And for me, definitely out of my comfort zone because there wasn't much water around me. And um, so I shot that and fell in love with the country. Then in 2009, I went back doing a story for a magazine on women working in Islamic society. And uh, I was able to interview a lot of different women on different social levels, but also in different professions. And one of them was a teacher in one of the schools in the northern part of the country. Now, I'd seen poor schools going around in Africa and traveling a bit. So I wasn't really shocked with what I saw because I was expecting it. But still, when I saw something, I was like, oh, you know, what do you guys need besides everything? And they said, oh, we need some books. We need pencils and erasers for kids. So I just went to the local shop in the bazaar and bought whatever they needed. And that was my contribution. And that's something that I always do wherever I travel, just try to give a little something back. But um, when I came home in 2010, I was expecting my first child. And as a girl, one day I had this light bulb moment. I was like, wow, you know, 
there's some countries where girls can't get an education. And yeah, I'd be pretty annoyed if my child couldn't get an education. So I called my guide and uh, I said, listen, this is what I want to do, but I need to know how much you're going to cost and I have to budget everything. And he said, no, no, Andrea, no more business between us. We'll help you. You stay with us at home. You just cover the expenses and I'll, I'll help you do it. So yeah, here we are in 2011. My first school was uh, created and it is an Australian recognized charity. There's a board of directors and a company behind it. And yeah, I go there every year now. Well, tell me about your those first impressions that you had when you walked into a school, because I think, you, you know, we can see it in your, in, in, in your photographs, what you've been able to accomplish. But can you sort of take us back into what it was like when you first walked into those villages, and into those schools and what you what you saw and, and inspired you to you know take some really proactive and you know, positive action to sort of affect the change in these people's and these kids lives? Look, I think the first thing I'm not phased by poverty. Uh, I've seen it. I've seen a lot worse than what I see in Pakistan. I mean, it's not nice to see, obviously, but uh, I've been there, done that. The thing that that hit me the most was walking into a classroom. And I remember, I think it was a third or fourth classroom that I saw in a school. They opened the door. It was very dark. There was just one window. And I just poked my head inside and said, yeah, okay, whatever. Can't see anything. And four kids just stood up from the corner of the classroom and all together said, oh, good morning, sir. And it freaked me out because I didn't even see them. And I was like, oh my God, like how can you guys even see the blackboard with this light? And that's the the main thing that that hit me. Uh, you know, sitting on the ground, being dusty, not having good books and all that, you can get over it. But not being able to see, I think that's quite a quite mm. an important thing you need. And and that's I would say the thing that hit me the most. It didn't shock me, but I was like, wow. And I was very impressed seeing these conditions. And seeing how how eager the kids are still to learn. I mean, th- these are conditions that we wouldn't send our kids to. Like, no way. Yeah. You, you wouldn't do it. And I don't know if it's because we're snobs, if it's because we're used to it, or if it's because they know how important education is and they'll do anything it takes to get one. So I was like, well, you know, hats off, guys. That's really commendable. And um, and yeah, that's, that's where everything started. So... That, that, that I'd say is the, is the major impact um, th- that I've seen. And to be honest, you've seen some pictures where the, dark, where the classrooms are very dark. It took me two trips to be able to translate photographically speaking that first impression that I've seen. Because I'd take portraits. I do a lot of posed portraits because it's a style that I've taken up for this project. You put the kids somewhere, you sit them in the shade or you sit them where there's enough light to take a picture. But I'd say in this year and the past year, uh, last year is the first time that I was able to actually take a picture in a classroom with kids sitting in the line of light from the sun in the window. So you see them lit up very well and then everything else goes black. And that's the first image that when I look at, it, I said, this is what hit me. Yeah. It, it took me a couple of years to get there. Maybe I'm a slow learner, but it's just one of those things that, um, yeah, this is it. This is, uh, yes, the kids, the portraits, but this is the... I, I think it says it all. It, it, when a picture says a thousand words, this is a picture that explains exactly what it's about. You know, when we're in the field making photographs with that amazingly sharp lens we invested so much time and money in, we sometimes make bad choices from poor camera handling or using too slow of a shutter speed, which defeats any advantages that that lens may have had. 
That's why stability is important, especially when you're photographing landscapes, close-ups, and portraits. There are times when hand-holding the camera is just not going to do it, and having a reliable tripod is the only solution. But a good tripod is only good when you have it with you, which is why the MiPhoto Air line of tripods is an ideal solution for me. Not only do they provide stability and reliability, they're small and light enough that I don't feel encumbered when I choose to store it in my bag when I'm traveling. It's there when I need it. And the latest generation of MiPhoto tripods are 30% lighter than classic MiPhoto models. Their new Hyperlock leg system allows you to set up and collapse the tripod quickly and single-handedly. And while they just look cool in seven brilliant colors. Check them out and order one today. If not for yourself, it makes a great Christmas gift for the photographer in your life. You can save 15% off of your purchase by using the promo code TheCandidFrame when you visit MeFoto.com. That's M-E-F-O-T-O dot com. Did, you, did your approach to photographing these people and these scenes sort of evolve and change over time? Because, you know, you are an outsider coming in uh, from a different culture, from a different country. There's always sort of the challenge of not simply objectifying people for your own purpose, even as well-intentioned as they may be, and to try and be as honest as you can be in terms of trying to consider their own perspectives about themselves and their and their own lives was that was that part of a, a a challenge for you in terms of what you were trying to do not only as a photographer but you know as a, as a person who was trying to help their communities um look i'm very lucky because the guide that i have been using since 2008 um is a local so especially in those communities they know everybody their family knows everybody so they're extremely well connected um so when I show up with him, the teachers know, especially in the first couple of years, that this is a serious person because otherwise my guide wouldn't have taken up that responsibility. Mm -hmm. Then over, over time, the bond starts creating, the teachers start recognizing you. And I think it took probably for this year was the fifth trip. So I'd say after the fourth trip, the teachers were like, okay, this guy's serious because he's coming back every year. It's not just, oh, I'm here. I'm a one-off. I'm going to help you. I'm going to save you. Here's some money and run along. Right. Um, the way they see it is like, okay, he's here. He's doing stuff. He's coming back every time we're doing something different. But whatever we do depends also on their requests and obviously on the budget that I was able to raise. So I'd say the relationship has improved. The kids start recognizing me, obviously, because they, they keep on seeing me coming back. I take their picture. And then when I go back a year later, I take small prints to give to them, which they obviously don't have pictures of themselves. So that's, you know, there's a language barrier, but you just need a smile, body language. You understand very quickly how it goes. Um, this year, for example, for the first time while I was taking the kids portraits, there are a lot of female teachers in one school. And while I was shooting the kids, I'm like, well, I'm going to see if I can take pictures of the women, which normally in those countries, you just, as a male, you do not do, period. Mm -hmm. Like, don't, don't even argue about it. And, uh, and all the ladies were there, and the male teachers were helping me out with names and all that. And then I said, okay, come on, come on, girls, your turn. And one of them was, like, very shy. I said, oh, no. And then one of the, the headmasters said, yeah, yeah, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And I even went to the point saying, look, I understand if you're shy or whatever, you can cover your face with your veil. 
just leave your eyes out because I need to see something. And all of them posed without, uh, without covering themselves up. And for me, that was a huge sign of acceptance. And once we finished that, there was a group of six teachers. They all asked me, said, can we have a picture with you? I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? Mm. Which is a great memorabilia for me. But it also shows, I think, not, not that the culture is changing, but it's the acceptance. And that, I think, is a very important part. Last year, for example, one of the kids that we sponsor, I wanted to take pictures at home. And she's an eight-year-old girl. I wanted to take pictures with her at home to show people back at home what homes look like, what the daily life is. And we asked her dad. And her dad didn't take a little bit of convincing. But at, at first, you could, he didn't say no, but you could see he was a bit hesitant about it. And then he said, yeah, sure, come on, not a problem. And, you know, when we finished whatever we had to do, we went home. And to my great surprise, this uh, girls all have veils when they go to school. So that, that's just part of the uniform. So to my great surprise, going home, she was dressed in her normal clothes, which were very colorful, and she had no veil on. And I'm thinking, wow, here's a stranger who comes once a year uh, knocking down. I'm not saying knocking down traditions because it's mm-hmm. not the case, but it's a sign of acceptance. And I, I was very amazed and very pleased to see that. So it was. Um, so th- things are changing, and it, but it's it's normal. But that's the way also their society works. Like we can see it as something strange. But I remember the first year I went there, I'd be at somebody's house where, who I'm staying with. The wife was never around, and I was like, wow. And that's different to our society. The year after, the wife would be there and should have a cup of tea with us. The year after that, the wife would hang around and take her veil off, even though we were at home. So it's just it's just their culture, and that's the way of doing it. And you have to accept that because you always have to remember you're a guest. What are some of the challenges that the girls, uh, especially, but all the kids face in terms of getting an education there? You talked about the conditions of the of the buildings where the schools are, but what are some of the other struggles that they face in terms of being able to to learn and hopefully improve their lives? I think the main thing is the quality of the education they're getting. Now, unfortunately, when you go into these remote villages, a lot of the teachers are not professional teachers. They're people in the village who know a bit more than the others. So they're the ones who take it upon themselves to teach. Um, Now, this year in 2016, we started a program where we're teaching teachers and giving them a training course. At the beginning of November, we had 22 teachers uh, take part in a course where they learned for one week how to build a syllabus, how to deal with children who are going to kindergarten but are scared. And then whatever issues these teachers had, they're like, well, you know, we have questions. So um, the organization that was training them uh, answered their questions. So it's it's education also for them. Uh, in, in February 2017, we're taking eight teachers to a nearby city and they're going to do a one-month training course on schooling, schooling issues, but also they're going to have they're going to take lessons in English and math and biology to improve their skills. So I'd say the main difficulty is the quality of training of uh, schooling that the children are getting. Schools exist. You don't need to go there and build them. Yes, you need to fix some. You need to maybe extend some. But the school the schools exist. Uh, the kids are there and the attendance very often is 50-50 boys, girls, which uh, was something that I was very surprised in, in a positive way. So those exist. People know the importance of schooling. Um, so I haven't encountered any rejection or any, uh, how do you say, um, opposition to, to promoting education there. Are, are, are most of the schools that you're helping uh, out in, in rural areas? Yes, very. 
So a lot of them, I mean, there's a there's a big road, which is the Karakoram Highway that goes from basically Islamabad all the way up to the Chinese border, which was the old Silk Route. But then once you get off that road and you go probably 20 or 30 minutes inland, you're in villages, uh, they have electricity, they have mobile phone coverage and all that kind of stuff. And they have their, their bazaars and their mosques and everything. But yes, they're very, it's very uh, agriculturally orientated. And um, the road conditions, you know, it can take you, it can take you an hour to do 10 or 15 miles sometimes because of the roads. That's just the way it is. And, um, you know, th- there's some villages where we went in the in the end of the valley. And literally, when you get to that village, it literally is the end of the road. Like, th- there's nothing after that. Yeah. Um, so it's, they're, they're, they're very remote places, all self-sufficient, and all obviously connected amongst each other through trails and roads. But uh, it's a very remote area, which is fantastic to see, I think. I mean, I find it fascinating. Were the logistics one of the more difficult aspects that you had to surmount? No, not really, because as I said, my guide's a local, so he does all the groundwork. I'd say three months before I arrive, when I know approximately how much money I have, he just goes to the schools and uh, asks people what they need. And then depending on the budget, we once I arrive, we go buy stuff, we go get things organized. So luckily, he's there. Um, yeah, sometimes you book a tractor to bring some furniture to a school and the tractor shows up half an hour late because he's having a cup of tea. Okay, and <laughs> that happens. You have to accept it. That That's probably the main difficulty that I struggle with, being on time. But otherwise, no, I haven't had many. Di- the difficulties sometimes are finding materials. Like when you're buying, if you're building something, you find everything. But if you want an encyclopedia, if you want a dictionary, very often you can't find it in the area where I am. So you have to go to a bigger village. And maybe it means driving for one hour just to buy a dictionary. Wow. So, yeah. So is, is it, what, was, what were some of the bigger challenges that you, that you face in terms of being able to provide the, the students and the teachers the resources that they need? I don't, I don't think there were, yeah, besides the example I gave you, because somebody needed a book, a challenge I do see in the future is keeping the teachers who have received their training, keeping them there. Because mm-hmm. obviously once they get a certificate, I imagine if they get an offer from another school, because everybody knows what's going on in the area, uh, if they get a better salary, they might, they're not going to say no. So I think that's going to be, that's going to be a challenge in the future to raise more funds and to be able to sponsor the teachers. So they're happy and they stay there. Um, the other challenge that I see, especially with girls is once they finish sixth grade or seventh grade, because the schools only go up until fifth or sixth, they have to change village because the schools don't go any further. And it's not like in our society where a girl can just go with a friend and rent an apartment and share a flat and keep on going. They have to go to somebody else's house, to, which is very often a relative or something like that, and the expenses increase. So that would be, I think, we will encounter a, a higher rate of dropout. Um, which is which is a bit of a bit of a shame. But then again, the way we're counteracting this is to extend some schools so they have more classrooms, but then therefore we need more teachers. So it's a bit of a vicious circle. But at least the kids can stay in their village. The expenses don't increase for them and they can continue getting an education. Those are the two major difficulties that I that I see coming within the next couple of years. And in you know, getting the money to be able to to do this work. Can you tell us about the challenges that you 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 faced with that, and and what role the photography has played in you being able to procure the funds? Look, I think the photography is key on many fronts. First of all, I have to prove 
to the Australian taxation office what I'm doing. Because obviously it's not a country where you go and you buy something and you get a receipt and you can show it, show it for your tax reasons. So that's the, that's the main thing that photography is, um, is needed. And I take a lot of pictures, which obviously I think are, well, I think they're nice. Uh, but a lot of pictures are also happy snaps of, I don't know, a tractor full of bricks, a tractor with desks, uh, just to show the physical material of what's, what's being done. Photography helps when I'm doing a fundraising dinner or I'm doing a speech at a school or a university because people want to see and um, people know that it's not just a generic travel shot. It's me going there. So there's also the human element of it. And um, especially I'd say with the years, the photography is getting maybe a bit more intimate as in I'm allowed to access, as I said, somebody's house, which before I never was um, teachers want to have pictures with me or especially the women. So, I'm quite camera shy and I like staying behind the camera, but very often a couple of people said, Andrea, you have to be in front of the camera at least once or twice because people want to see you because it's your project because you're doing it. So you need that human element and not just me showing pictures, which is fine. You do it. But no, photography is very important because I make a book once a year. It's a digital book. I mean, it's printed, but it's printed digitally, which helps to raise funds when I have a dinner, I, I put prints up for sale. If somebody wants to buy a print online or something and they contact me, I sell it and all the funds go to the trust. And, um, and something that I'm really proud of is that 100% of the donations go to the trust. I cover my own expenses, like my flights um, and everything once I'm there. But then once I start working for the school, that's, um, that's all school money. You know, it must be interesting because you get to see such an extreme. I mean, you see, you know, so the, the, the very little that these kids have and the struggles that they face in terms of creating an education. And then you're shooting a sport in which these million dollar boats are being, um, navigated across the, the, the waters. How does that, seeing that, that huge sort of disparity, how has that sort of shaped your perspective of, of, of not only, you know, the world that you, you, you photograph and that you, that you live in, but yourself and your own family. Look, uh, they're obviously two complete different things in my mind. So I don't have a problem switching from being in Pakistan full of dust and living the way they do to coming back home and being in a black tie because I have to photograph a dinner. I, I really don't mind. What I do mind is when you start seeing stuff being wasted, you're like, Really? Like, you know that those $200 could really make a difference somewhere else? And there I have to be careful not to bite my, I have to bite my tongue and not say anything because it's my project. It's not theirs. Mm -hmm. And they would not even understand that kind of comment because, because they're not involved in it like I am. So switching, it's, it, you know, being a freelance, you have to switch jobs. There's one day you do a portrait. There's another day you're doing sailing. There's a day after you're shooting at the stock exchange. So you have to adapt very quickly to what you're doing. And that's what I'm doing with this job. It's, um, you know, I have to go on a boat, I go on a boat. I have to go on the mountains, I go on the mountains. So I'm able to isolate, not isolate, separate them um, very well. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me. The thing I do notice, I'd say in the past two or three years, I do think about Pakistan a lot. It's definitely something that's um, that's gotten under my skin. It's it's my seventh trip there, so it is um, it, it is something that keeps me going. Like I'm already organizing the next trip for October next year, um, and I'm already thinking about it. Also because I want to do a take people there as a and do a photo tour, like a photo workshop. So I'm just trying to get some ideas on on how to make this on how to develop this. So it is something that I'm thinking about already now, and um, I'm like. 
you know, I just came back a month ago, maybe take a break. I said, no, I'm not taking a break. I'm editing my pictures. I'm processing film when I shoot there. I go in the dark room and print it. So I'm living it in my spare time all year. And it's something that I look forward to. You, know, you but, mentioned earlier about how your family reacted to you visiting sort of Pakistan. So I'm sure that there are a lot of assumptions that are made about the country, about, about the people. How, what role has that sort of played in you in terms of basically serving as sort of an ambassador and educator to people in Australia and, and elsewhere about the, the country and the people? You know, you're having to serve not just as a photographer, but as a sort of an ambassador. Um, you also have to in some ways, be a, an educator to people. Can you tell me about that role, about the uh, how that sort of, how that feels in terms of you being more than just a creative? I'm a positive person. Yes, Pakistan has a lot of problems. There's no secret about it. But it's also a beautiful place. The people are amazing. And unfortunately, the media never reports that side of things. So one of the things that I've given myself as a, not a mission, but it's, it's my, it's my way of thinking and my way of shooting. When I go there, I don't want to shoot negative things. There are plenty of people who do it and they do it a lot better than what I could do it. But when you show the kind of art that they have, the, for example, they have trucks over there that they decorate and there's not one inch that is not been painted or has a sticker on it. And it's something that's absolutely incredible. And when people see it, they're like, Oh wow, that's amazing. Where is it in Pakistan? Oh, really? said, yes. So, you know, the landscapes are amazing. Um, the, the, the country has a huge potential. So in my little world, I'm just like, guys, I'm talking about positive things in this country because there are a lot of them, like in many countries. And unfortunately, we don't hear about it. The, the most common question is, isn't it dangerous? And look, knock on wood, I've never had an issue. Um, I say this jokingly, but I think the most dangerous thing is the amount of unknown people that come up to me and hug me and say hello. Um, <laughs> it's just, and it's, it's because they know how important tourism is. Before 9-11, Pakistan was the second most popular destination for mountain climbing. And it's something that you would have never thought about. And uh, then 9-11 happened and, well, there's, no, there's never, uh, yeah, sometimes I might see two or three tourists in the two weeks that I'm there, but that's it. But the structure's there, and they know how important tourism is. And uh, very often, you know, you stop on a roadside, there's a roadblock or a police checkpoint or something, you just get out of the car to stretch your legs while you're saying hello to everyone. And the, the cops will, or the military will say, everything okay? Do you have any problems? I said, no, no, everything is going fine. Can you please tell your friends? And so on every level, everybody knows how important it is, and they miss it. Mm. And unfortunately, there's this preconception that... Yes, anything can happen. I mean, we've seen it. You know, you don't have to be in Pakistan for bad things to happen. Uh, the world we live in today, um, we have problems everywhere. But in my experience, then again, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't go looking for danger um, because I'm not interested in it. But uh, on the other hand, they're beautiful places. And, and a lot of the fear that we have is ignorance. How do you want you know, this effort to evolve and change in the next several years? Um, look, I think my dream would be to have a journalist of a important magazine or newspaper or online blog come with me and of course have a look at my first school because that's what I'm doing, but also have a look at the country and experience it because I reckon if you can get the word out there, 
people will start being a bit more curious at all. Oh, he's been going there. He's going there again. Oh, I know somebody else who's been there. And everybody says, yeah, it's great. It's a bit of an adventure trip. I mean, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but not as in danger. I mean, the roads exist. We're not talking about uh, walking over bridges that are just on two cables. Um, the infrastructure is there. So, yes, I would love to see uh, tourism pick up again. Um, that's why I'm starting these photo tours, because I think there's potential and um and people are curious about it. I think the credibility that I have now, having been there seven times, is quite strong. Like people say, well, he's been there, he's doing something there, he knows the area, he wouldn't be going back if there, um, if there was a problem. Well, and tell us a little about those photo tours where people can expect. Well, the idea is to bring people, you know, Pakistan's a, it's, it's a big country, and there's a lot to see. Uh, archaeologically speaking, history, the history is massive, and landscapes. So I'm organizing this photo tour, probably, well, I'm not organizing it, but I'm helping uh, with my guide for 10 days. And we're going to do, uh, I'd say maybe two or three days in Lahore to visit all the mosques and the forts and do some history, and then fly up north or drive up north to see the mountains, villages, and landscapes. And people will hopefully get um, an introduction to Pakistan and see, see what it has to offer. So it would be a, it is a photo tour. So, I mean, yes, you can come and take pictures with your iPhone if you want, but it is more aimed towards photography. And, uh, and it's, you know, the idea is to have people come have a good time and come home with better pictures. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh gosh, one. Um, look, one of my idols in photography is a Japanese photographer called Daido Moriyama. Oh yeah. Who's uh, a massive, he's, I think he's 80 or 82 now and he's published, I think 79 or 80 books. And he's known for his black and white street photography. He's somebody who is not my style of photography because he's a little bit too left field sometimes, but it does stimulate me. Uh, so definitely somebody to look at. Um, or otherwise, the Australian photographer Trent Park, who is um, the first Australian to join Magnum. Uh, he started as a street photographer, and then he worked for the papers, very good sports photographer, and now he's an arts photographer. So he's doing, yeah, he did a lot of street photography. He's won the World Press Award countless times, both with sports and with daily life uh, images. So I'd say those are the two people that, that I look up to, two great. Which, I, which ironically have nothing to do with sailing. <laughs> well, two great recommendations. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your, for your time, Andrea. It really was a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thanks again to Andrea Francolini for joining us here at TCF. You can check out his work by visiting afrancolini.photoshelter.com. That's A-F-R-A-N-C-O-L-I-N-I.photoshelter.com. If you love the conversations we've been bringing you over the past year, and especially if you've been inspired by them, why don't you spread the love? Write a review in the iTunes store. It helps our ranking and helps spread the word on the work that we do here at TCF. Don't hesitate. Do it today. 
You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more, or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work we do at TCF. Thanks to Zandi Macedo and Jacinth Juhaz for their recent contributions to the show. You're making a big difference. Thank you. And lastly, I'm working on joining photographer and fellow podcaster Martin Bailey for his Hokkaido Winter Landscape Photography Adventure at the beginning of January, and I hope to see some of you there. You can find out more about this wonderful experience by visiting martinbaileyphotography.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.